The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Yes? Can you hear me? Good. It's nice to see you tonight. It was interesting for me that since the talks that I prepared for tonight and two weeks from tonight to substitute for Andrea are on the impact of our relationship to time on our suffering, particularly our suffering around conflicts, that I got mixed up on the time that we started tonight and I arrived at five o'clock and there was only a few people here and I thought, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> and then I got to watch my mind initially uh, make that about me, of course, because that's what we usually do, right? We make whatever's happening about us. And uh, then I got curious about what was going on and decided to just relax and watch the uh, beginning meditation class and participate in that. And then finally it dawned on me that I was at the wrong time. This is from one of my favorite long poems by T.S. Eliot called The Four Quartets. Time past and time future allow but a little consciousness. To be conscious is not to be in time. To be conscious is not to be in time, but only in time can the moment in the rose garden, the moment in the arbor where the rain beat, the moment in the draughty church at Smokefall be remembered, involved with past and future. Only through time, time is conquered. I've been reading that poem for about 20 years and I still find it perplexing and fascinating and beautiful. And we have many purposes for time. Here are a few examples. We use it as the primary organizer for our activities. For example, tonight started at 7.30, not 7 o'clock when I arrived. We use it as a synthesizer and integrator for our activities. Since all of you knew that it started at 7.30, you were prepared to come at that time. So the activity was integrated among all of us. We prioritize things we need to do by using time. It's a way for us to categorize different experiences. Sitting in meditation, I spend 15, 20, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever it is you do. And watching the Warriors basketball game takes two and a half or three hours, or taking a walk with my friend takes an hour, or going to the grocery store takes way too long. So we organize our, and categorize different experiences around how much time they take. And it's a feedback for how things are going for us during the day. Am I being productive enough with my day? Am I getting behind? Am I getting ahead? And we measure our competence, our abilities, by using time. How well did I perform today in a certain amount of time on what I needed to get to? done? And it's a language. Time is actually a language to describe the process of our lives and what is important to us. We think about a certain time in our life. Perhaps we were living in a certain place or we were in relationship with someone. And we describe that period of time in a certain way. And it's a special unspoken message system 
that we use to reveal to each other how much we, how we really feel about each other and whether we like someone or don't. By the time we spend with them, our willingness to be with them. So it's a core part of the way we handle our life. There's a wonderful book by a Buddhist teacher named Rob Burby entitled Seeing That Freeze, Meditations on Emptiness and Dependent Arising. And he writes, we can consider that just like left, center, and right, I did that backwards, I did it for me, but not for you, left, center, and right, uh, they're all connected. The very notions of past, present, and future depend on each other. And what does he mean by depend on each other? We can't think of the past or the future except from the present because that's the only time we ever know. But our memories of the past can't be separated from what's happening right now and our fantasies about the future only occur right now. So they're all dependent on each other. None of the three has any independent existence. You can't have one of them independently. We can't have just the present because the present implies a past and a future. So if a meditator is tempted to say from experience that past and present are illusory, they don't exist. Since they're all interdependent, then that means the present doesn't exist since it depends upon the past and future. So time is a very mysterious thing for us. And we struggle with it and have difficult relationships with it. For example, just now when you were sitting, I bet every one of you had time sense. Oh, it must be time for him to ring the bell. Or, wow, it went so quickly. Not many have that, right? Mostly, it seems to take a long time. But if we were watching some television show that lasted 30 minutes, it might go like that, even though it's the same 30 minutes. And many of our conflicts with others arise because we have a different relationship to time. I was thinking about my former law partner, who was a state senator in South Carolina. And this was back in the 80s when I was very involved in uh, training process that some of you may have heard of. It started out here in the Bay Area. Some of you may even have participated in it, called the S training. And I was involved in the S training. And I enrolled my law partner, I'll call him Joe, in that training. I had been in the Army during Vietnam, not very happily, but my law partner had been in the Army during Vietnam as well, and he had actually gone to Vietnam and was a tank commander and had had some pretty horrific experiences. And I believe looking back on that time, that when he took this training that's really about opening up to yourself and being more aware and opening up your uh, perspective on your relationship with others, etc., achieving some measure of awareness and openness and connectedness. That his experience took him back to that horrific time in his life. 
And one day I was sitting in my office early in the morning, uh, preparing to uh, working because I was preparing to go away that weekend. And our law associate, who happened to be Joe's girlfriend, as did many of the women that worked for us, this was during the 80s, she's now his wife, so uh, that was a different, she was a different one than many of them. She came into my office incredibly distraught and had one of those long yellow legal pads that don't much exist anymore with four or five pages of a long letter from Joe, which essentially said, I've taken all the money out of the accounts and I've left and you'll never see me again. As you might imagine, that was a startling event in my life. I can picture and remember exactly how I was sitting in front of my roll-top desk in my squeaky uh, roll-around-the-office chair on historic Broad Street in Charleston, South Carolina. Looking back on it, I know that he had now, I didn't then, that he had a different relationship to time than I did. And that was the source of our struggle. Universally, regardless of our relationship to time, and I'll come back to the story of Joe, um, one of the big reasons we struggle with time is because we confuse it with space. So, for example, there's this space right here. And this space is now filled with this event called Thursday night meditation. And this space in your life is filled by this particular space and this event. We confuse time with space and events, and we also confuse it with things. Because if I have a particular thing that I like to do, then time moves differently when I'm with that thing. If I have a particular thing that I don't like to do, time moves differently with that thing that I don't like to do. So as a result of this confusion between space and time, all kinds of physical things, accomplishments, activities, entertainment, groups of people, the electronic gadgets that capture us so much, the entire list of things we use to distract ourselves from dukkha, our suffering, each day of our lives through this endless cycle of time. And perhaps the most fundamental realization we need to achieve through our practice is to be mindfully present right now and right now in more moments of our lives. But how can we do that when we have this distorted relationship with time? Meditation is a struggle for each of us because simply sitting without an event happening or without being distracted by a certain thing, time stretches and it's more difficult for us. So, in fact... The only time we ever experience is time in the present. None of us has ever experienced the past or the future because we're only aware in the present. In the present, I have memories that I call the past and I have fears or projections that I call the future but I only experience right now. 
So in our practice, it's helpful to say as an awareness, always only the present or only now exist. When our mind is perseverating, which it often does, about the past and the things that we did or didn't do that we like or don't like, or planning or worrying about the future, bringing ourselves back to only now exist, always only in the present. And just think for a moment how we use our thoughts of this illusory past and future. It's almost always to criticize ourselves for something we did or didn't do, mistakes we've made, or to worry and fret about the future. So by thinking those thoughts, what are we creating? We're creating this false sense of Daniel each moment by that perseverating about past events that I either did well or didn't do well, criticizing myself or worrying about the future. I keep creating myself over and over again. And that's, I suspect, exactly what happened to my law partner, Joe, when he had flashbacks of what had happened to him in the horrors of combat, as you can imagine. That kind of past is challenging. There's a wonderful book that if you're as interested in time as I am, that I recommend to you. It's by Jacob Needleman. Some of you may have heard of him. He was a longtime professor at San Francisco State University. And it's called Time and the Soul. Where has all the meaningful time gone and how can we get it back? And he talks about or writes about our fundamental pathology with time arises from our tortured relationship to the future and our worry about the past. All our agitation, planning, and manipulation of others never leads us towards the future as it actually appears. Just think about that for a moment. We sit in meditation and we fret about the future or we're driving to a meeting and we're fretting about what's going to happen in that meeting or we're thinking about our relationship with our significant other or our lack of a significant other we're worrying about our children or not having children or our money or not having money as we drive in the traffic on the freeway. But the future, if you've noticed, almost never happens the way we have perseverated about it in the now. It shows up differently unless we have so focused our worry and become so intense that when we go to that meeting, we actually create it being the way we've worried about it being because we've spent so much time fretting about it. And we do not perform well or mess up in some way because we're lost in that past or future worrying. And Professor Needleman writes, we can barely even imagine what it will be like to walk across the street, far less to imagine what our life will actually be like in a day, a week, a month, or five years. It's one of our fundamental illusions that we can imagine the future in any true sense. So my fundamental premise for you to think about right now and continue to think about it right now is that most of our suffering arises out of our relationship with time. And yet we don't think about time in the way that I'm urging you to think about it. 
If we healed our relationship with time, that would allow us to move more into the right now that we only experience so that when we sit in meditation, we're more present and awake and aware in that time instead of perseverating about the future or the past, which catches us. We would allow ourselves to be penetrated by the mystery of this self that we create. Because I'm projecting Daniel back into the past, all the things he did wrong that, I, that keep coming up for me, and I go, oh my, did I really do and say that? And I worry about doing that in the future. As I was writing this talk, I thought about how when people ask me how I'm doing, I often say, I'm busy, a bit too busy. Does that sound familiar to you? And in responding that way, I'm expressing my own struggle with time. That's why I'm interested in it. We, the old saying, we teach what we need to learn. And when I feel this busyness, I'm reifying my sense of Daniel as this busy person. That's the Daniel that I'm creating. And I'm putting myself outside of the present moment because in the present moment, I can't possibly be busy. I'm only doing what I'm doing. So the busyness that I fret about is my projection about all the stuff I need to be doing from the past that I didn't get done, and so I must get it done in the immediate, quick future. So I'm not present, fully able to do what I need to do by that fretting. I hope, Daniel, that you will remember what you just said tomorrow. And I hope that this pathology is sinking into you. I realize that time is a challenging thing to talk about. And it doesn't seem quite related to meditation. But just take a pause and really let it sink in what your mind actually does when you're meditating and why meditation is a challenge. Isn't it because you're constantly going to the past or the future instead of staying right now in the present with your breath, with your body, with the sensations that are arising right now? So think about what the Buddha was really challenging us to learn to do by the practice of meditation is to stay in the only time we ever experience right now in this moment so that I can be fully present with you right now instead of worrying about what I have to do tomorrow or thinking about what I failed to do today. And when I'm with my wife or when I'm talking to my mother over the telephone, being fully present right there, that's what the whole purpose of meditation is. And the fundamental challenge we face with our practice is spelled T-I-M-E. So, this is kind of the fun part, I hope you will think, of this talk. A little history of how we got time in the first place. Some of you may know this, but this comes from a, another wonderful book that I suggest to you, as you may have guessed by now. I'm kind of fascinated with the topic of time. This is by Gary Eberly, and it's called Sacred Time and the Search for Meaning. So he writes that, ironically, our strong European, Northern American culture focus on scheduling and doing certain tasks at certain times, 
our time in the northern hemisphere, as many of you know who are from the southern hemisphere, our sense of time and the way we handle time in the northern hemisphere is very different in the southern hemisphere. And that came from Christian monks who organized their daily routine of work and prayer according to the book of hours. And events were, were scheduled by the signaling of a bell. And the scheduling, ironically enough, began as a way to keep the monks' attention faced on eternity. Because that's what they were there learning to do. You know, they were deeply Christian in their practice and they believed they needed to purify their hearts for eternity. And only gradually did the schedule become an end in itself. And somewhere around 500 in the current era, Benedict of Nursia wrote his famous uh, Regula Monochronum, which is now known as the Rule of St. Benedict's. And there were no clocks then. So how did they measure the length of an hour? Well, they divided the daylight up into 12 parts and the dark up into 12 parts. And as you all know, by suntime, daylight and dark changes. So an hour was 60 minutes only twice a year on the equinoxes. But they were called hours, nonetheless. And unlike our daily planners and now our watch, uh, our, our cell phone uh, calendars, the purpose of the Book of Hours was to be a soul guide to take the practitioners on a spiritual journey through life and into eternity. And led to kind of a temporal nonchalance, a deep connection and flow with the cyclical rhythms of the earth because the, the space of the, quote, hours changed every day. But how different is our experience today? Because somewhere along the way, and let's see, it was about 1,200 in the current era, the Benedictines solved the problem of... Uh, having to, to keep a monk awake at night to watch the stars and turn the hourglass or counting on a special candle or reciting a certain number of prayers. And with human frailty, people would fall asleep and it would get all mixed up. So they solved that problem by developing a bell ringing mechanism attached to a set of gears with a round dial marking the hours. And that was the first rudimentary clock in about 1200. So they were the first human community on the planet to devise a system for telling time not directly related to what can be observed in nature. And then the rage for clocks took hold. And like most of our machines, the servant became the master. Think about our computers, our cell phones. They were our servants, and now they own us and run us. And by 1400 or so, hours were no longer flexible. They were based on particular prayers chanted, or that they were no longer based on particular cha prayers chanted, or the season of the year. They became a fixed unit of, quote, time. And gradually, timekeeping led to a greater sense of urgency and not a process closely connected with the flow and rhythm of the earth and its seasons. And as we all remember from English class, uh, the medieval sense of having one foot in eternity faded and anxiety about time increased. And King Richard II in Shakespeare's play said, I wasted time, and now time doth waste me. For now hath time made me 
his numbering clock. Time was in charge. And the clock spread quickly outside monastic walls. Time urgency and fretting about time in the Renaissance gave way to our modern sense of time. And here's a funny little historical tidbit. In 1552, the English Parliament tried to limit the number of holidays, which remember were holy days, to 27 Imagine 27 holidays. A huge reduction from the hundreds during medieval times before there were clocks and before we had the system of temporality that we have now. So the cultural concept of time changed dramatically. And the whole universe began to be perceived as moving like a clock. It was a clockwork universe. Things were studied, and the stars moved in a certain way, the sun moved in a certain way, so the perception was that the entire universe was based on time. And as we remember, when Macbeth learned that the queen is dead, he responded, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Remember this? Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player who struts and frets her hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. A tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Time was in control. And think how much more it is in control of our lives. And that's the purpose that you're all, and I am with you, in yearning for by the very practice of meditation. To escape from that tyranny of time. But yet... Time is our focus while we're sitting because we go off into the past and off into the future. So, time as relative rather than fixed and tight came along in the 20th century. And the laws of science should be the same for all observers, no matter what their speed, but surprisingly, that relativity was at the heart of those theories because Einstein famously said that energy equaled matter times the speed of light squared and the understanding that nothing may travel faster than the speed of light. And so there was a realization that time was actually not absolute. Because if you're moving at a certain speed relative to light, time actually goes slower or faster. It's a personal concept. So from the fixed relationship to time that started in medieval era when relativity came into our consciousness as human beings, we began to see that our relationship to time was also relative. So you or I, all of us, will have a different experience of the time tonight because we have a different relationship to what's happened. You've either liked what I've said and stayed present and maybe gotten engaged or you've gone off and thought about something and said, this is really boring or you haven't liked it and you've thought about it and struggled with it. So why? Why is time such a problem for us? Number one, clinging. 
Remember clinging in the teachings? That suffering always arises when we cling to something. And clinging is also when we resist something. Again, in Rob Burby's book of, of Seeing That Freeze, both in and out of meditation, we can notice that the sense of time becomes more prominent when there is a greater degree of craving or aversion to something. So just think about it for a moment. When you're sitting and you have a craving for something else to happen, you're thinking about something in the future that you want to happen, time slows down because you don't have that right now. Or you start thinking about something in the past that happened that you have an aversion to. It's, oh my goodness, I can't believe I said or did that. How badly I messed up. When those kind of thoughts come up, again, time slows down. And in our practice, it becomes more difficult. So whenever we cling, we shift our sense of time. And he gives the example of having to wait in line when we don't want to. Or we want to be someplace else. Or we're dreading or yearning for some event in the future. Or we're aversive to waiting for the, when will Daniel ring that bell? Gracious goodness. Time slows down. And conversely, when, we're, when grasping and aversion are relaxed, our sense of time becomes lighter. So when I'm perfectly content with being here right now, I'm perfectly content being with all of you, my sense of time lightens up, I'm much more relaxed and present. When you're doing something that you really love to do, or you're with someone you really like being with, or you're doing, taking a walk in nature, something that you really like, your sense of time relaxes. So, that means our sense of time is greatly impacted by clinging, and it also means that our sense of time is conditioned by impermanence. Now, what do I mean by conditioned by impermanence? Obviously, nothing we ever perceive is permanent, especially what we perceive as ourself. It's always changing, and it's always in the process of decaying and dying. Our minds can't perceive the quick flux of moments in time. So we have this gap between how I experience Daniel and how I experience time. Time moves so fast, it's fleeting. Where did time go? How did I wake up and be in my 70s? What happened? I don't feel like that. I'm still only a sexy, fun-loving 35. Or I'm a happy-go-lucky 20-year-old in my head. And I look in the mirror and I say, Who are you? Where did you come from? Those of you who are younger still have that to look forward to. (laughs) But that gap of separation from others and the universe gives rise to suffering. How many people have you seen, women especially, who have had so much plastic surgery or have so much makeup on because they're trying to deny the sense of time that has happened. They can't live with who they are now, who is all they've ever been, all any of us have ever been is who we are now. 
And we say, when we look at this gap between who we perceive ourselves to be and our sense of time, we say, what happened? What's the matter with me? Why am I so out of sync with my life? Why do others seem so together while I seem so messed up? Maybe I need to learn to meditate so that I'll get better. Sound familiar? And that effort runs us right smack into our sense of time. Because meditation is easy and flows or is a struggle and hard depending upon whether we have come into right and wise relationship with time. The more we spend going off into the past or going off into the future in our sits, the more difficult it is. And those teachings of the Buddha, of the fundamental three characteristics, which if you've been here enough, you know, impermanence, anicca, dukkha, suffering, and this false sense of Daniel, this Daniel from the past and the future that doesn't exist, that I worry and fret about. That's the way life works. And those aren't teachings for us to believe in. They're teachings for us to experience so that we can apply it to our life and see how they cause us to suffer because we're grasping and clinging to a sense of ourself or to what did or didn't happen in the past or what we want or don't want to happen in the future. We're lost in those places and that creates suffering. That's the source of it. So it's not that the Buddha offered us those teachings so that we believe like in a religious sense. It's the practical wisdom of how to learn to live our lives free of suffering. As Ron Burby's book is entitled, Seeing That Freeze. We want to free ourselves from it. So you'll have to come back in two weeks to hear the conclusion of my thoughts on time. But I'll give you a hint that time, our sense of time, relaxes and expands when we see it as multidimensional and begin to see our own unique connection with time where we can understand ourselves well enough to know how we best connect with time and that was one of the lessons that I got from this disaster with my law partner Joe We had a big office on the then fanciest street in Charleston. And we had several associates and secretaries and office space. And so you can imagine how I felt when, I'll call her Alice, came in with that long yellow pad note. I was both furious I was scared. I was actually doing what I thought was meditation then, but looking back on it, I can see how far away I was because the suffering was intense and I had no ability to say, only now exist. There's only right now. I was angry about what he had done in the past and I was worrying about the future. Caught in my sense, my ineffective relationship with time. And I spent a lot of time keeping the law firm going 
and helping Alice, who was devastated by his disappearance, keeping her together, and she and I obviously became very close. And then Joe, six months later, returned. And it turned out that he had gone to Israel. He was Jewish, but not particularly religious. He had gone to Israel trying to join the Israeli army. And a friend of his, who was a general in the Israeli army, saw that he had suffered some sort of mental breakdown and took him in and allowed him to stay there with him until he got himself more together. And he came back, and we had a division of finances and a division of case responsibilities and a lot of bad and difficult feelings. It was not a happy time in my life, I assure you. And he went off, and I rented out part of the office and kept practicing law and kept myself together and my family. And I don't know, maybe a year passed, and one day, Arnie, uh, Joe, sorry, <laughs> Joe called. I realize these are being recorded, so I'm being conscious of that. Joe called. And I hadn't spoken to him in a long time, so I was remember precisely where I was sitting then also. Sort of flinched up, you know that feeling when somebody's on the phone that you really don't know what they're going to say and you just want to punch them, but they're on the phone and it's too far away to punch them. <clears throat> he said, uh, we owe... Uh, Sam, our accountant, $5,000. And this was in maybe 84, 85, $5,000. Still, it was a lot of money. It was really a lot of money then. And I said, no, we don't, Joe. You agreed to take that debt. And he said, you're right, I did. But I'm not paying him all of it, I'm only paying him $2,500. And he slammed down the phone. So, be there with me in that moment. But something was different for me. Something had happened for me, as I look back on it, in my own relationship to time and in my meditation practice. I had come to see just a little glimmer that there's only right now. And I said to myself, do I want to right now keep this feeling that I have right now alive or do I want to end it? Do I want to continue this suffering of my anger and being at the effect of his bullying, controlling, blankety-blank-blank, or not? And I decided that the answer was, it was time to end it for me. And I thought, how can I do this skillfully in a way that will end it for me and also protect me from another phone call like that or another visit like that? And I thought a long time about it, several days. And then I came into my office one morning and I typed out a letter to, what did I call him, Sam, our accountant. And I wrote, Dear Sam, as you know, 
Joe and I have separated, and I'm still using you as my accountant, as you know, and so's Joe. And Joe and I agreed to take certain debts, and he agreed to take the $5,000 that we owe you. But he called me the other day and said he was only going to pay you $2,500. And I value my relationship with you, so please find enclosed a check for $2,500. And I made a copy of that letter. And I had gotten a card because Joe and Alice had gotten married, but they didn't invite me to their wedding. And I got a wedding card and I got a thank you card. And in the thank you card, I sat and thought of all the things that I had learned from Joe that had improved my life and contributed to my life. And it was a long list and it was easy and fun to think about all those things. And I wrote him that thank you note. And then I took the wedding card and I wrote a congratulations to Joe and Alice on their wedding. And I said, please find enclosed a copy of a letter that I've written to Sam as your wedding present. So I put the letter to Sam, the accountant, in the wedding card as my wedding present to them. And I put it all in a package. But I knew Joe very well. And I knew that he would likely see a letter from me and just toss it in the trash. So, my daughter had recently had her fifth birthday and we had had a gorilla come to the birthday party. And all the little kids just love this gorilla. I have these wonderful pictures of the gorilla chasing the kids around our house. So I call the gorilla, and he came to my office, and I said, I want you to deliver this letter to, to Senator, he was still a state senator, to Senator Joe. And he said, okay, fine, you know, the fee was... I don't know, this was in the 80s, I think it was 25 bucks or something. But I then said, do you have a camera? And he said, yes, I always have a Polaroid camera. Remember those, some of you? I always have a Polaroid camera because people like to make pictures of themselves with the gorilla. And I said, great. I said, here is a $100 bill. Bring me back a picture of Senator Joe opening my letter and you get this hundred bucks. Since his fee was only $20, as you can imagine, a hundred dollars was quite an incentive. And he did. And that picture sat on my meditation altar <laughs> for a long time. And I freed myself from the past. That's time. So I hope I have entertained you and intrigued you and hopefully opened up the connection between time and your practice. And we've got a couple of minutes for any questions, and I hope to see you all in two weeks and wish you a very happy Thanksgiving. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. This was very entertaining and insightful. I have a question when you said, um, you know, that when we meditate and we are clinging, that it seems like it's longer. Yes. I was wondering, so... When I wake up in the middle of the night and it feels like I can't fall asleep and the night is going to take forever, yes. am I clinging to something? Absolutely. You're clinging to your fear of not being able to go back to sleep. Mm. 
So that fear is there. So when that happens to me, I note fear of not going back to sleep. Ah, what's arising is fear of not going back to sleep. Isn't that interesting? Wow, here I am right now in fear of not going back to sleep. Now, when we are directly in reality and we've acknowledged directly what's happening right now, everything in us relaxes because we're not split into the past or the future. We might have thoughts of, oh, this happened to me last night and I didn't get enough sleep last night. Or, oh, I've got so much to do at work and if I don't get a good night's sleep, it's going to be really hard for me. So see, we're off into the illusory past or the future out of the clinging to our fear of not going back to sleep. So come right into the present right now and say, ah, my present moment right now only exists and what I've been experiencing right now is fear of not being able to go back to sleep. So I have named what my mind is perseverating about and that calms the mind. Thank you. You're welcome. I'll try that tonight. <laughs> Good. One more over here. Um, hi. Hi. Um, when the Buddha was teaching the first students and talking about past, present, and future, from what you said, that was way before the invention of clocks. Yes. So um, my whole life, and I assume every, well, I know everybody in here, clocks have existed have been part of my life since for, since the day I was born. Actually, absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, how does how does that affect the reception of the teaching? You know, now versus versus then, and does it make it easier or worse? Or is it you know does that does that not matter? And and a more practical thing, if there was no clocks, what what do they do to begin and end meditation? Just Somebody randomly hit something when they felt like it, and somebody else randomly hit something at the end, and that was it? Well, for your last question, I'm personally not familiar enough with the suttas to answer that question. I suspect there's something in there, and Gil, being an expert in that realm, might know. But to your first and most important question, which is, how did their sense of time, how was their sense of time impacted by not having clocks versus our sense of time now with clocks? And think, number one, that the Buddha gave these same teachings when there were no clocks. So clearly, even then, monks and people were just like us getting lost in the past and worrying about the future. Past, present, and future, all interdependent, all relying upon each other. My guess is that our experience of time may be more intense because our culture is so much more intense and our temporality is so much more intense and our busyness is so much more intense. But that's just a guess because relatively speaking to who they were then, they probably had as much craziness as about time as we do. It was just... It's just the condition of humanity. That's why the Buddha emphasized it. That we get caught in clinging to the past and we get caught in aversion to the future and our sense of time takes us away from right now, the only time that exists. That's what he taught then and it applies to us now. 
but it's a very interesting question. Does that help? Yeah. Good. Well, thank you all very much. Again, happy Thanksgiving, and I'm glad that you arrived at 730. It would have been really weird otherwise. <laughs>